If you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible and would like to borrow one, just slip your hand up and uh, Greg Grotewald will bring one by to you. We're in Luke chapter 16 this morning. We've been taking a trip through the Gospel of Luke and we're now in Luke chapter 16. We'll be starting in verse 19 and reading through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. Let's pray before we read. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for your blessings upon us in Jesus Christ. And we look to you now, Father, and and just ask that you would bless us, that you would be gracious to us now through your word. Lord Jesus, you say in the word that your sheep hear your voice, and they follow. And I just pray now, Lord Jesus, that you would speak through me, through this part of your word. Lord, speak through my inabilities and my weaknesses. And, and may you speak, Lord Jesus. And, and will, you, will you draw your sheep uh, to follow after you here this morning? We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. There is is one common topic that can be traced all the way through Luke chapter 16, this chapter we're just finishing here this morning, and that is the topic of earthly possessions or earthly treasure. Let me just quickly recap what we've seen so far here in this chapter. I think that will help us understand what we just read right there. Back at the start of this chapter, Jesus taught a crowd of his disciples or followers this parable about a dishonest manager. And Jesus was teaching his disciples there about the proper use of earthly possessions. He was teaching his disciples to be shrewd and eternally minded with their possessions. He was teaching them to be faithful stewards of their possessions and, and, and also to be careful not to be mastered by their possessions. And then right after Jesus taught that parable there, Luke then told us in verse 14 that there were some Pharisees in the crowd there, some Jewish religious leaders who overheard this teaching and they ridiculed Jesus for it. And why? Luke says in verse 14 that the Pharisees were lovers of money. The Pharisees' hearts were greedy for earthly 
possessions. And when Jesus spoke to his disciples there about the proper use of earthly possessions, I think the Pharisees, because of their love for earthly possessions, felt threatened by Jesus. And so they ridiculed him for his teaching. And so in verses 15 to 18 then, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. And he pointed them back to the Old Testament law and prophets in order that they might see their sin and repent. And now, right here, on the heels of that rebuke, Jesus tells this story. He is still probably speaking primarily to these money-loving, greedy Pharisees in this crowd here. And this parable here is a warning. It is a warning to these Pharisees in front of him. It is a warning to all of us here this morning. Jesus is warning us here about the misuse, or he is warning us about the abuse of earthly possessions. The first parable in this chapter here was about the proper use of earthly possessions. And now this parable here is a warning about the improper use of earthly possessions. The misuse or the abuse of earthly possessions. There are two men in this story here, a rich man and a poor man, but the focus here in this story is clearly on the rich man. There are three main parts to this rich man's story, I believe. And the first thing we see here is the rich man in this life. In this present life. If you look at verse 19 again, Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. A rich man, a, a, a wealthy man with an abundance of earthly possessions. And Jesus describes his richness here in two different ways. His covering or clothing and his feasting. Jesus says he was clothed in purple and fine linen. Probably purple outer garments or robes and then fine linen undergarments. Purple outer garments or robes in first century Israel meant money. Purple dye came from snails and was very expensive to make. Paul Newman and and, uh, Tom Cruise did a movie a while back that was called The Color of Money. And the color of money in Jesus' day was purple. Purple was the color of kings. Right before Jesus was crucified, and it will happen later in the book of Luke, the Roman soldiers will mock him. They'll put a crown of thorns on his head, and they will put a purple robe on him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. Purple was the color of kings. It was the color of money. And fine linen undergarments were typically imported from Egypt and were also very, very expensive. They were the undergarments of kings. So you you think about this rich man here. He basically dressed himself in Armani suits and Calvin Klein underwear. I mean, he had it going on both outward and inward, the best of the best. And he ate well, too. Jesus said he feasted sumptuously every day. Surf and turf, fine wine, every single meal, feasting lavishly, feasting extravagantly every day of his life, and apparently living in a very nice house. Jesus talks about the gate of his house here, and the Greek word that, that, that is used here for gate is a word that was typically used for the entrance of a city, or a temple, or a palace. So this man is living in some sort of mansion here. This man lived in the lap of luxury. All of the best amenities, the, 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 the best comforts, the, the, the conveniences that you could find in first century Israel. A rich man. And he spent a lot of his riches on himself. 
a self-indulgence. It's not a sin in and of itself to be rich. It's not a sin in and of itself to have an abundance of earthly possessions. Earthly possessions in and of themselves are not inherently evil. They can be a tremendous blessing. But the critical question is this. What do you do with your earthly possessions? If you use the vast majority on, of them on yourself in self-indulgence, that is a problem. And that's what this man did here, the rich man. And Jesus then tells us about a poor man. And the contrast between these two men, man, it could hardly be greater. T.W. Manson calls this a violent contrast between these two men. One of these men is a have, and the other is clearly a have not. One seems to have everything in the world going for him, and the other seems to have everything in the world going against him. You look at verse 20 again. Jesus says, And at the rich man's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. A man named Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. And this is not the Lazarus who was the brother of Mary and Martha, the one that Jesus would later bring out of the tomb. That was a real historical Lazarus that Jesus brought out of the tomb. This is a parabolic Lazarus, a fictional Lazarus Jesus is talking about right here. A poor man named Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. And listen, the fact that someone laid this man at the rich man's gate seems to imply that he was maybe crippled or sick in some way and unable to move himself. And Jesus describes this man's poor condition here the same way he described the other man's rich condition in terms of his covering and his feasting. The rich man was covered with purple and fine linen, but Lazarus, Jesus now says, was covered with sores. Ulcers or abscesses, probably very putrid, foul-smelling sores. I worked for a time as a physical therapist, and open sores can be some of the most foul-smelling things on planet Earth. And these were probably also oozing or weeping or seeping sores because they attracted the local dogs. And the rich man feasted sumptuously every day. But Lazarus, Jesus now says, feasted on nothing. He says here that Lazarus desired or craved or lusted to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He longed to eat the rich man's table scraps. And Jesus could be talking there about the little pieces of bread that wealthy Jewish people would use essentially as napkins to wipe their dirty hands during the meal and then throw under the table. Lazarus longed to eat this rich man's soiled bread napkins. But the implication here is that the rich man gave him nothing. The rich man covered with purple and linen feasts inside while Lazarus covered with sores starves outside, just outside of the rich man's gate. The people in Israel probably would have described Lazarus's condition here as no life at all. The Babylonian Talmud, which was written just a little bit after this here, the Babylonian Talmud, it says that three situations resulted in no life. One, being dependent on food from another person's table. Two, being ruled by one's wife. And three, having a body full of sores. And Lazarus is fulfilling two of those three 
conditions. No life at all. And you talk about adding insult to injury here. Jesus says here that moreover, on top of all this man's other misery, the town dogs came and licked his sores. And dogs in first century Israel were not considered to be man's best friend. Okay, these are not some cute little puppy dogs coming up to comfort Lazarus. Oh, poor Lazarus, let me lick your cheek here for a second. No, dogs in first century Israel were typically wild dogs, scavengers that roamed the streets, more like hyenas. Lazarus is starving, but these dogs are filling their bellies with the ooze. From Lazarus's source. This man is suffering. And the rich man neglects them. And you can picture it. Picture it. Just close your mind. Close your eyes. Think, think of that. Picture it. Picture it. The, the rich man walking through his gate. In and out. Day after day. In his purple and fine linen. Maybe putting something over his nose. To, to, to cover himself from the stench. Hearing Lazarus moan at times. Their eyes meeting occasionally. But the rich man just turns his eyes away. And, and walks past him. Confronted every day with this poor man's suffering. Every day a chance for this rich man to feed the hungry. And clothe the naked. And heal the sick. And yet he does nothing. A load of earthly resources. And he uses none of them to care for Lazarus. He uses all of them for his own comfort and pleasure. And maybe also for the comfort and pleasure of his family and friends. You know, it's possible this man was, was single and, and living alone. But it's more likely that he was married and had friends. And I'm sure he spent resources on his family and friends on their comfort and pleasure as well. But not a single dime spent on the poor man dying just outside his gate. That is the picture of a self-indulgent life. And that right there is a very common way of life in our world. Especially here in America. All these possessions in my life, they are mine. And I can do with them as I please. I might give a couple dollars to the Salvation Army every Christmas if I want. The vast majority of my earthly possessions will be used for me. Me, my family, my friends. Used for our comfort, our pleasure, our health, our clothing, our food, our retirement, our fun. I mean my, while neglecting by and large the needy of the world. A self-indulgent life. And according to the Bible, that is a serious misuse or abuse of earthly possessions. According to the Bible, you do not own your earthly possessions. God does. As we saw in the parable of the dishonest manager, everything, everything, everything you possess in this life, money, home, cars, clothes, food, family, all of it ultimately belongs to God. And you are simply a manager or, or a steward of some of God's things in this life. God has simply entrusted you with some of His things. You get to, to, to manage those things He's entrusted to you. you. You get to distribute those things He's entrusted to you. You get to transact some business with those things He's entrusted to you. And it's okay for you to use some of His things for, for yourself. To take care of, of your needs and the needs of your family and friends. God cares for you and he wants you to use some of his things to meet your needs in this life but God does not want you to glut yourself on all the rest self-indulgent life just hoard his possession call them all your own and use the vast majority of them all on you God wants you to use these things wisely a faithful steward of the things He's given to you. And one of the things He wants you to do with His things is to care for those who are hurting. 
all around you here in this life. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Heal the sick. And if I don't do that with God's things, if I don't do it, if I just primarily live a self-indulgent life with God's things, that is a serious misuse or abuse of earthly possessions. That's what the rich man did here. And he pays for it in the end. That's the second thing we see here. First, the rich man in this life. And second, the rich man in the next life. We look at verse 22 again. Jesus says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So Lazarus dies, probably of starvation. And you'll notice there that Jesus never mentions burial for Lazarus. Poor people in Israel were oftentimes not buried. Their bodies were simply tossed onto the burning trash heap in the valley of Hanan, probably where Lazarus' body went. But the rich man, Jesus says, was buried. You can picture his burial. His body was probably paraded through town on a, a wooden funeral plank. Draped most likely in purple and fine linen. Then buried in above ground beautiful ornate tomb. Half the town mourning for this man. Half the town saying, oh, how this man is enjoying God's presence now. Even in death, the rich man received much better than Lazarus. But here's the thing. Life doesn't end in death. Death is really just the beginning of the story. And just after these two men died here, a massive reversal took place. The poor man instantly became rich. Jesus says here that Lazarus was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And I believe that's Probably just Jesus' way of saying there that Lazarus' soul was carried into heaven. Abraham is the father of God's people. And Lazarus is now somehow enjoying a very intimate and close fellowship with Father Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and with God himself and all his holy angels. The poor man has now become rich, infinitely rich. But the rich man has now become poor, infinitely poor. Jesus says here that his soul is now in Hades, which is another name for hell. And Jesus says that he's in torment here. And the Greek word there refers to a severe pain or torture due to some kind of punishment. This man is in agony. He's in anguish. He says later here in this chapter, he is in distress. And please listen to me. This parable here does not present hell to be just some place of annihilation where your soul is simply destroyed and that's it. No, hell in this parable is a very conscious, ongoing, irreversible torment. Poor man has become rich, but the rich man has become infinitely poor. The great reversal. Man, you look at this story here, and it, it, it kind of seems at first glance that Jesus is, is saying there that all poor people go to heaven and all rich people go to hell. All, all you have to do to go to heaven, then, is just give up everything you have and become dirt poor and you're in, man. Because the rich all go to heaven. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. The poor man here does not go to heaven because he's poor. He goes to heaven because he's a poor believer. Lazarus may have had nothing else in this life here on this earth. But one thing he did have, it seems, was faith. 
A genuine faith in God. And Jesus is indicating that to us here in this parable. Jesus calls the poor man Lazarus. A very common name in first century Israel. But listen, the fact that Jesus gives this man a name at all is highly significant. Out of all of the parables that Jesus ever taught in the Bible, out of all of the little stories that Jesus ever told, this right here is the only one where Jesus gives one of his characters a name. And why did Jesus give this guy a name here? Why did he call him Lazarus? I think he's telling us something right there. The meanings of names are very significant in the Bible. And do you know what the name Lazarus means? God is my helper. God is my help. And I think Jesus is telling us there that, and this, this poor man trusted in God for help. A believer, and it's, it's, it, it's amazing to think that he did because he wasn't seeing God's tangible help in this life in the midst of his pain and suffering. But despite his incredible pain and suffering in this life, Lazarus, it seems, believed that God would somehow ultimately help him. Faith in Lazarus. And the second Lazarus died, God did help him. God sent his angels, and the angels carried Lazarus tenderly up into the very bosom of Abraham. Father Abraham. And you know what the Bible says about Abraham in Romans 4.11? It says that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Lazarus didn't go to heaven because he was poor. He went to heaven because he was a poor believer. A genuine faith in God. And on the flip side, the rich man here didn't go to hell because he was rich. He went to hell because he was a rich unbeliever. In just a second, this rich man will beg Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers to warn them to repent so they do not end up like him, which is a clear indication that he knows he never repented. No genuine repentance in this rich man. No genuine faith in him. A rich unbeliever. And you know what this parable is right here? You, you know what it is? This, this parable is a, a very graphic illustration of what Jesus said back in, in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you poor believers like Lazarus. For yours is the kingdom of God. And, and though you are poor in this life, you will soon be infinitely rich in the next life. And then blessed are you who are hungry now. You who are hungry believers like this man Lazarus right here. For you shall be satisfied. And though you starve in this life, you will soon be infinitely full in the next life. But... Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are rich, unbelievers, like this rich man here, for you have received your consolation. And though you are rich in this life, fat and happy in this life, you will receive no consolation in the next life. You will be dirt poor. And woe to you who are full now, you full unbelievers like this man here, for you shall be hungry. And though you eat very, very well in this life, you will starve in the next life. It's a graphic illustration right here of Luke chapter 6. This rich man here, he went to hell not because he was rich, but because he was a rich unbeliever. And listen, this, this rich man look at him, you think about him, this, this rich man's lack of faith, his lack of genuine faith in God was revealed or was manifested in the way he handled his earthly possessions. 
And, and that right there is a principle that Jesus has been trying to hammer home to us throughout this entire book of Luke. Here's the principle again. And let, me, let me reword it, say it a little differently. Here's the principle Jesus has been trying to hammer this home to us all the way through the book of Luke. The way you handle your earthly possessions in this life is an indicator of that which is in your heart. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. What you do with your earthly treasure, it reveals your heart. Have you ever heard the phrase, money talks? Well, your money is talking right now. The way you're handling your earthly possessions right now is declaring something about the condition of your heart. And listen, one thing it is declaring, it is declaring whether or not you have a genuine faith. It's declaring where your heart truly is. Whether your heart truly is in heaven, a genuine faith in God, or whether your heart is truly on earth, no genuine faith in God. If you are right now seeking to be a faithful steward of your earthly possessions, if you're seeking to manage them well by the best of your ability, not hoarding them all in self-indulgence, but looking to give generously to those in need, that is a sign that you may have a genuine faith in God. You might be a true believer. It's, it, it's a sign that, that, that you may truly believe that God ultimately owns all your possessions. You may truly believe that you will one day be held accountable for what you do with his possessions. And consequently, you're seeking to manage them wisely. Good stewardship, generosity with earthly possessions is an indication that you might have genuine faith. Now, it doesn't mean that you definitely have genuine faith because a lot of lost unbelievers are very, very generous with their things. More generous, sad to say, than a lot of Christians at times. So generosity, good stewardship with your things, giving to the needy, does not necessarily mean you have a genuine faith in God, but it is a good sign True believers will be generous people. That is just what happens when the Holy Spirit enters your heart. You now know that God has been extremely generous to you, and you become more generous with other people. Not a perfect generosity. Every believer still struggles with generosity at times. We all struggle with faithful stewardship of God's things. We are all growing in those areas. But listen, every single genuine believer will be marked by a measure of generous stewardship. A measure of generosity. You're not saved because you're generous. You're not saved because you give things to the needy. No, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by faith alone in, in Jesus Christ alone. But every person who is truly saved will produce good works. Every genuine believer will be growing in generosity, seeking to be more and more faithful with the things that God has entrusted to him or her. And if you're not... If you are a terrible steward of God's things, if you hoard the vast majority of your possessions and use them primarily for your own self-indulgence, just you, your family, your friends, if you just constantly heap up the best amenities and conveniences and comforts you possibly can in this life while neglecting for the most part the poor and needy of this world, that is a sign that you may not have a genuine faith in God. A sign that you may not really believe that God ultimately owns all of 
of your possessions in this life, a sign that you may not truly believe that you will one day be held accountable for what you do with his possessions, and consequently, you are wasting them. A self-centered misuse or abuse of God's things, it's a sign that you may not have faith. You might say you do. You might say that you believe in God, say that you believe in Jesus Christ, but if your life is marked by a horrible stewardship and a serious self-indulgence with God's things, that is a strong indication that you may not indeed have a genuine faith like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. The people Jesus was addressing with this parable here. This rich man here is a picture of a Pharisee in Jesus' day. They were very religious people on the surface, the Pharisees were. They, they, they said they had a faith in God of the Bible. They looked like they did at times, but in their hearts, they were greedy lovers of money. And it showed. They were terrible stewards of God's things, not living for eternity with God's things. They were living for the present with God's things. Self-indulgent lifestyle, constantly neglecting the poor and needy, heaping things up for themselves in this life, proving that they did not, in fact, have true faith. 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? James 2.24 If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And and what James is saying right there is that a so-called faith in God that does not have a generosity when it comes to the needy of this world is a dead counterfeit, false faith, like the Pharisees. And man, we desperately need to take this thing seriously. I mean, we really do, because do you know the vast majority of us here in this room, we are not the poor of the earth. According to world standards, we are the rich of the earth, the wealthy of this planet, like this man here. I've given these stats to you before, but I think they are worth repeating. If you make only $10,000 a year, you make more than 84% of the people on this planet. And if you make $50,000 a year, you make more money than 99% of the people on this planet. We are not the poor of the earth. We are the wealthy of the earth. And again, it is not a sin in and of itself to be rich. But listen, riches are very, 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 very dangerous. Now we look at them and just instantly call them a blessing. Oh, brother, you won the lottery today. You are blessed, man. Really? Because I know a lot of people won the lottery and their life just goes to hell in a handbasket. Riches can be a huge curse. We are the rich of the earth by and large. And listen, please, God cares what we do with His earthly possessions. He cares. And the wealthy in this world who are not faithful stewards, who just use the majority of God's riches and self-indulgence and do not give generously, proving that they do not have a genuine faith in God, despite what they say, those who die in that condition will not go to heaven. Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever hides his eyes from the poor, 
will get many a curse in hell. Man, professing Christians need to take this thing seriously. Do you know, do you know how much the average, do you know how much the average professing Christian in America gives on a yearly basis? Do you have any idea? Professing Christians all across America, on average, what do professing Christians give? You know what they give? Two percent. Two percent. The the Old Testament required a ten percent giving. And and, and now in, in New Testament churches, where giving should be so much more generous and so much more joyful because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Two percent. 2% of our incredible wealth given to others. And 98% spent on self. Now, 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 that's one thing if we live in a third world country where we all make $2 a day. And you've got to live on 98% of your stuff. But in America, where we make what we make, 98% spent on self. What in the world does that say about professing Christians in America? I think it probably says that quite a few professing Christians do not have a genuine faith in God. They're like the Pharisees here. Look good on the surface, but at heart, greedy money lovers. Now, hearts are not truly in heaven, but here on earth. It also probably means that there are genuine Christians in America. We just need to seriously be sanctified when it comes to our earthly possessions. Because we're missing it. Money talks. So so let me ask you, what, what are your earthly possessions revealing about the condition of your heart right now. You know, I heard of one man, he disciples other Christians. You know one of the first things he asked these other Christians to do? Bring me your checkbook. Bring me your credit card statement. Because I'll know where your heart is when I see where your money's going. Money talks. What's your checkbook saying? What, 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 are your, what are your credit card statements saying right now? Do you know? Do you know that God will, will, will test us with this thing regularly in our lives? With a Lazarus laid right at our gate? Lazarus laid right before your eyes. Maybe you're walking down the street and there he is. And you, and you see him. Clearly in need. There he is. Maybe you receive a letter from somebody. And, and, you, and you detect in there, clearly in need, there's Lazarus. Maybe you read an email. Maybe you hear something about over, overseas, orphans in China, something like that. There's Lazarus. I received a letter this week. It's amazing how God tests my hearts on the very passages I'm preaching on. I'm working on the sermon. I receive a letter from, from a, a Christian brother of mine. His name is Aaron. He's in prison in East Texas. 18 years old, committed a horrible crime, repented, brokenhearted, crushed, been following the Lord ever since. I, I receive a letter from him. He's now been in prison for 18 years. He used to visit him regularly. And, he, and he just, he's, he's talking about what he's doing. They've, he's actually working with the seminary now so he can start churches in prison. Man, praise God. And he sent me some, some papers he had written for the seminary. I was like, man, praise God. And just, just kind of off the cuff, he says, sorry I didn't write you sooner. My mother used to give $100 a month to the prison so I could buy stamps and things. And she retired and doesn't do it anymore. So the brothers here in the prison are helping me out a little bit. 
And it really, he wasn't, you, you know when, a, when, when an ex-con's trying to con you. <laughs> he wasn't doing that. But man, I knew right there, God said, there's your Lazarus. There's your Lazarus. What will you do? And I wrote a sticky note right there to talk to Molly. When she gets back, we're going to send him some money so he can buy some stinking stamps in prison. My word. Listen to what Kent Hughes says. Kent Hughes says that every man is given some Lazaruses at the gate. Test cases to see whether he will use his possessions rightly or wrongly with love or with self-indulgence. What will you do with the next Lazarus at your gate? We care for that Lazarus. Stop. Give generously to that Lazarus somehow or hide your eyes and walk away. And I will confess, I have personally walked away far too often. And I do not want to do it anymore. There's forgiveness in Christ. There's conviction in Christ. I do not want to do it anymore. I want to notice the Lazarus by God's grace and help if I can. What will you do the next time God tests your heart? So that's the rich man in this life, the rich man in the next life. And the third and final thing we see here in this story, the rich man's pleas or his requests in the next life. The rich man here in this story has two requests in Hades. The first starts in verse 23, if you look at it again. And in Hades, being in torment, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now you read through that, you got to be careful. <laughs> you got to be careful. This is a parable. It's a story. And parables are meant to teach some basic, general principles. So when you read this stuff here about heaven and hell and people talking to one another between heaven and hell, uh, you got to be careful that you don't press the details of the story too hard. It's highly Unlikely that people actually do those things, that they can see and talk to one another between heaven and hell. Jesus, I think, just puts those things in this parable here to help us grasp to a greater degree the measure of this man's anguish in hell and the reason he's in hell. Jesus puts this conversation together to give us insight into what's going on here. So don't press the details too hard here. Catch the basic principles. Jesus says the rich man is in Hades here, and he lifts his eyes, and he sees Abraham and Lazarus far off. doesn't necessarily mean people in hell will actually be able to see people in heaven, but I do think that the Bible is clear that people in hell will have a conscious knowledge. They will know that while they are in torment, other people are in the presence of God. And that, I believe, will be part of the torment of hell, knowing that other people are in bliss while you are in torment. The rich man somehow perceives that Lazarus is in heaven in the very bosom of Abraham and he cries out for mercy. Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish here. And that doesn't mean you can actually talk (laughs) to people in heaven when you're in hell. Jesus is just making a point here, I believe, about this man's anguish. All through the Bible, hell is described as a place of fire. 
We don't know if it's a literal fire or if it is just a certain type of torment that burns like fire. But this rich man feels it and he cries out for mercy. How ironic is that? The man who was merciless in this life now cries out for mercy. Send Lazarus, Father Abraham. (laughs) The poor man that I let die. Send him so that he could cool my tongue. The thing that feasted in his face. Interesting that he knows Lazarus' name. So he didn't just walk past Lazarus on a daily basis. He knew Lazarus. He knew who he was. And still walked past him on a daily basis. And man, it's crazy. But here in Hades, in hell, the rich man still thinks Lazarus is somehow beneath him. A slave or something like that for him. Send Lazarus to help me. I didn't help him, but send him to help me. It's just arrogance. Give me mercy. And notice this. This rich man, he's not repenting. He's not sorry for the way he lived his life. He's just asking for comfort. little water for his tongue. And Abraham says, I can't. There's a great chasm that has been fixed by God between us. No possible way for us to leave heaven to get to you. No possible way for you to leave hell and get to us. Makes you want to ask the question, how does someone get out of purgatory? If there is a purgatory. There's a chasm. You do not leave this place. Abraham is saying to the rich man. Your condition, rich man, is irreversible. Permanent, eternal. I cannot show you mercy. It's too late for you. The window of grace has closed on you forever. Proverbs 21.3 Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. James 2.13 Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Jesus told us back in Luke 16.9 He told us to use God's things in this life to to be generous with God's things in this life in order to make friends for ourselves in the next life. And this rich man failed to do it. He could have made an eternal friend with Lazarus. And he failed to do it. And now it's too late. He's been removed from his stewardship, an unfaithful steward who misused and abused God's things. It's too late. So the rich man offers up a second request. If you look at verse 27 again. And he said, then I, then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them. Lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, may they'll Repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the rich man realizes now it's too late for him. (laughs) Now he kind of turns into an evangelist, man. Okay, Abraham, well then will you please send Lazarus to my five brothers to warn them so that they can repent which implies that they were living the same type of self-indulgent lifestyle as he was. Warn them, warn them, Father Abraham, sin Lazarus, warn them so that they might repent and then not end up like me. And Abraham says, no. They have, the Mo- they have, they have Moses and the prophets. <laughs> and that was just another way to say they have the Old Testament Scriptures. 
they have Moses. They have the Old Testament law. They have the prophets. They have the Old Testament prophets. They have the Old Testament scriptures. Let them listen to them. And what Abraham was saying to this rich man there was that the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament law and prophets, which his five brothers apparently already had, told them everything they needed to know about being generous with the poor and needy. And oh my word, the Old Testament scriptures do tell you everything you know about being generous to the poor and needy. I make up my practice. I try to read through the Bible every year. It amazes me. I just mark every time in the Old Testament where it talks poor and needy, poor and needy, poor and needy. So over the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures say a ton about caring for the poor and needy. And Abraham is saying that the Old Testament law and prophets were sufficient. All the brothers needed to see what God required concerning the poor and needy. All they needed to lead them to repentance. All they needed to help them become faithful and generous stewards of God's things and to avoid the place of torment that he was in with the Old Testament law and prophets. But the rich man argues with Abraham. (laughs) No, Abraham, that won't be enough. And you know what he's saying there? It wasn't enough for him. It wasn't enough for me. There's got to be more than that. No, Abraham, it won't be enough. But if you send someone back from the dead, now that will convince them to repent. And Abraham says no. They won't listen to the law and prophets. They won't listen if someone rises from the dead. And with that exchange right there, between Abraham and this rich man, I think Jesus was probably sending a very direct message to the Pharisees, sprinkled among his disciples. Did you notice that the rich man here called Abraham Father Abraham? He does it three times. And that's exactly what the the Pharisees did. They boasted in the fact that they were physical descendants of Abraham. They were convinced that they were right with God. And they would go to heaven after they died simply because they were physical descendants of Abraham. Living self-indulgent, callous, unbelieving lives and yet resting in the fact that Abraham is our father. And Jesus absolutely blasted the Pharisees for it in the Bible. Repeatedly. John 8 is a great example. The Pharisees look at Jesus and they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus responds to them, if you were the sons of Abraham, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Meaning you would be doing works of faith like Abraham. And Jesus went on there in John 8 to say this, you Pharisees are of, the, of your father, the devil. And John the Baptist blasted the Pharisees for it back in Luke chapter 3. The Pharisees were coming out to be baptized by John in the wilderness. And John said, repent. And bear fruits of repentance. And don't you dare say, we have Abraham as a father. Because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And what does Romans 4.11 say about Abraham? Abraham is the father of all who believe. The Pharisees were not true descendants of Abraham. And I believe Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here, you rich, self-indulgent unbelievers, you boast in your physical connection to Abraham. Well, here's a physical descendant of Abraham calling him Father Abraham multiple times, and he's in hell. And if you do not repent, like John told you to do back in Luke 3, you will go there too. And man, the Pharisees were also constantly asking Jesus for a sign. That we will believe what you say, Jesus, if you just give us a sign. Sign, sign, sign. More signs, Jesus. More signs, Jesus. More signs, Jesus. Bring someone back from the dead, Jesus. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees here that he will not give them more signs. They have all the evidence they need to know that he is speaking truth 
in the Old Testament Scriptures. If they will just read them and actually heed them, actually listen to them, they will know what he says is true. They will see their sin. They'll repent, not end up in Hades like this unrepentant, unbelieving rich man here. You know, the ironic thing is, is that Jesus did send some people back from the tomb. Lazarus, the real Lazarus, being one of them. And yet many of the Pharisees did not believe and they tried to kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence. And Jesus came back from the tomb and they still didn't believe and tried to hide the evidence again. Jesus knows signs are not going to help them. And when Jesus mentions the law and prophets right here, that is now the second passage in a row that Jesus has pointed the Pharisees back to the law and prophets. He, He did it in the passage right before this when he talked about marriage and divorce. We looked at it last week. And now he does it again right here, pointing them back again to the law and prophets when talking about stewardship. Talking about generosity to the poor and needy. And why does Jesus keep pointing the Pharisees back to the Old Testament law and prophets? Why does Jesus point them back right now in the area of stewardship? Why is Jesus pointing all of us back to the law and prophets right now in the area of stewardship? A couple of reasons, I believe. One, the Old Testament law and prophets, they show us our sin. They show us our sin. Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When you read through the Old Testament law and prophets, you read through those scriptures, you you begin to realize that God demands a, a, a faithful stewardship from you. That God demands that you give generously to the poor and needy. And you begin to realize that God doesn't just suggest it, He demands it from you. And then you begin to realize that God demands that you do it perfectly. You must love your neighbor perfectly or you will suffer the consequences. You you see that reading through the Old Testament scriptures. God demands a perfectly faithful, perfectly generous stewardship. And we've all failed miserably when it comes to stewardship of God's things. And Jesus wants the Pharisees, Pharisees to see. He wants all of us to see our sin. Points us back to the law and the prophets. And number two, the Old Testament law and prophets show us our need for a Savior. When you finally see the depth of your sin, when you're reading through the Old Testament law and prophets, when, when, when you see the depth of your sin in just this one area, in the area of stewardship, you realize you can never possibly save yourself. You need help from an outside source. You need a Savior. And Jesus wants the Pharisees, he wants us to see our need for a Savior. But three, the Old Testament law and prophets also show us who the Savior is. Namely, Jesus. In Luke 24, (laughs) Jesus will say that the Old Testament law and prophets are all ultimately about him. They all ultimately point to Jesus. And they teach us about Jesus. They don't just show us our need for a Savior. They show us who the Savior is. Galatians 3.24, the law is our guardian to lead us to Christ or to point us to Christ. And who is Christ? Well, He's the only person on planet Earth who perfectly fulfilled the law and the prophets. Jesus said, I don't come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. And Jesus did fulfill them perfectly. Every part of the law and prophets. Do you realize that Jesus is the only one who fulfilled God's law perfectly in the area of stewardship? The only one who gave to the poor and needy of this world in a perfectly generous manner. Only Jesus. You know, do you know who Jesus is when it, when it comes to this area of stewardship? Do, do you know who Jesus is? Jesus is a rich man who lived in a mansion in heaven, dressed in the purple and fine linen of his kingship, feasting sumptuously every day with his father. But Jesus did not neglect 
the poor, starving the naked at his gate. Jesus left his mansion and he came out to you and me. Poor, starving, naked sinners, immobilized by our own sin, completely dependent on somebody to save us, helpless and hopeless. Jesus came out to us. He was a perfect steward of the things his father entrusted to him. He didn't stay in his mansion and use them for himself and self-indulgence. He gave them generously and joyfully gave them away on the cross. And man, when the Old Testament law and prophets finally reveal your sin to you, when they show you your need for a Savior in this area of your life, and when the law and the prophets finally bring you to the Savior in broken-hearted repentance and faith, you know what Jesus does? He feeds the hungry. He clothes the naked. He heals the sick. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the rich man became poor so that the poor man, so that the poor woman, so that the poor child, the poor sinner, by his poverty might become rich. And once Jesus gives his things to you, once he saves you and he cares for you in those ways, you know what Jesus says to you? Go and do like. Go and do likewise. Be a faithful steward of God's things. Don't waste them in self-indulgence. Look for the Lazarus at your gate. Look for the Lazarus on your street, the Lazarus in your city, the Lazarus in your world, and give. Follow in my footsteps and give generously. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick. Not in order that you might be saved, but because you already are. Not in order that you might be loved, but because you already are. God demands a perfect stewardship, but man, everything that God demands, he does in the person of Jesus. May God give us the grace to cling to Jesus in faith, the perfect steward, in order that we might give generously to the Lazarus at our gate. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Father, for a perfect Savior named Jesus. Lord, we just confess we have failed, failed miserably to meet your law's demands. Failed miserably. Lord God, we believe that in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven people. And we are empowered by your Holy Spirit to go and do differently. So I just ask that you would convict us, Father, of the areas where we've lived in self-indulgence. Father, I pray you'd help us to keep from falling into a legalistic guilt. Lord, you'd help us to be motivated by the gospel, motivated by grace, to joyfully, joyfully give generously and lavishly to the needy around us. In Jesus' name, amen.